You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, February 13th, the Washington Post hosted a live discussion with stars and producers of the Hulu original series, The Looming Tower. Based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The show dramatizes the rising threat of terrorism and tensions between the FBI and the CIA in the lead-up to September 11th. In this discussion, The Washington Post's David Ignatius speaks with actors Jeff Daniels, Tahar Rahim, Peter Sarsgaard, and Ren Schmidt, with the show's executive producers Dan Futterman, Alex Gibney, and The Looming Tower author Lawrence Wright. Former FBI Supervisory Special Agent Ali Soufan also joins the conversation. The cast and producers give a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the show. Let's listen. So, ladies and gentlemen, as the, as the lights come up um, and, uh, and the real uh, people are on, on stage, I'm David Ignatius. I'm a columnist for the Washington Post. I'd say this is a much better turnout than we get when we have politicians or cabinet secretaries here. I wonder why that is. Um, but it's, it's a delight. Let me uh, first say what a pleasure it is to have everybody from this uh, uh, team here, especially my old a friend, Larry Wright, who I've known for many years, and, and I should say, uh, also especially, to have uh, the real-life Ali Soufan, who you've just seen uh, portrayed uh, on, on screen, uh, but somebody who lived this fight in real life and whose, whose uh, struggle is, is documented in the film. So it's wonderful to have uh, every, everybody uh, here. Second, I should just uh, note that uh, we at the Washington Post are delighted to, to host this. Um, we're still journalists. We're going to let our, our critics review the looming tower. We're going to let our journalists write about the issues that are discussed uh, here, uh, but we're delighted to, to have everyone here. I want to start off with, with Larry, uh, whose book, uh, The Looming Tower, uh, is how this began. It won a Pulitzer Prize uh, and is an absolutely seminal uh, work in, our, in the history we, we've lived through. And, I, watching this, was haunted by a question that I think many people will be, uh, which is, is, if Osama bin Laden, the other side of the story that you're telling, were alive today, would he say that he ended up winning or losing the battle that he joined on that terrible day, uh, September 11, uh, 2001? Well, the battle isn't over, and uh, you know it's a mixed thing because, from his point of view, yes, right after 9/11, Al Qaeda was scattered and in disgrace and and rebuked by every country in the world, including every Muslim country, and you know that was a nadir. And uh, from that moment, Al Qaeda began to reconstitute itself. It's a far larger organization today and far more sophisticated than it was before 9-11. And it's in so many countries. And it's, it's spawn, uh, not just Al-Qaeda, but ISIS and other groups, you know, have proliferated. So in that sense, uh, and I think he would also take credit for polarizing America and the Muslim world. 
this has been uh, his object from the very beginning. And uh, it's, it's striking to me how we take the bait. Um, on the other hand, uh, he's provoked a crisis inside Islam uh, that uh, I don't think he understood the dimensions of it. And it's, it's going to define that religion uh, in the future, but I do not think it's going to be defined on the terms that he would like for it to be. Well, I'll, I'll t take that as a, as a, as a positive conclusion. Uh, certainly, th I think about Saudi Arabia and the way it's changing. Yeah. It's not the Saudi Arabia that... Just a Biden few years ago, yeah. It's just amazing how quickly it's changing. So let me turn to Ali Sufan, the real-life uh, former FBI special agent who, who lived this uh, story. And uh, Ali, I want to ask you about the basic dynamic that runs through this series, which is the deep tension, the antagonism, sometimes bitter, bitter uh, rivalry between the FBI and, and the CIA. The series opens with that very stark uh, accusation. And these problems were supposed to be fixed by uh, the 9-11 Commission's recommendation that we create a new structure we have a director of national intelligence who would force the FBI and the CIA to cooperate. And you watch this as closely as anyone. Has that worked? Are the problems that this uh, series is about, have those problems been solved? Yes, absolutely. I think you cannot look at uh, the relationship between the different intelligence agencies today in the same way uh, that uh, we used to operate before 9-11. And let me mention something about 9-11. I mean, at least from my side, um, before uh, when uh, we were doing operations, like what you've seen in Albania or what we've seen in, you know, in Jordan or in the East Africa embassy bombing or in Yemen, we were working very closely together, the FBI and the CIA. I was more detailed to the CIA than detailed to the FBI. My actually first partner on the JTTF was a CIA officer, case officer. Uh, we never, I thought everything was fine and dandy. So when we were requesting information that we're, um, we're, um, we want because of the Yemen investigation on the USS Cole, uh, we thought that, you know, when people tell us we don't have it, uh, we don't have it. And uh, on September 12th, actually, I was handed intelligence that I've been asking for since November, and we were told not have it. It wasn't an institutional. For me, it was the death of innocence, uh, honestly. It wasn't institutional issues. It was, uh, we thought everything was going great, but then we found out that things were not going great. So you start to have, looking at everything that happened before in a totally different perspective. The situation today is, is, is a lot uh, better, uh, especially after the restructuring of the intelligence community. I think the FBI and the CIA have excellent uh, working relationship uh, and they are on the same uh, sheet of music. You've seen it today, for example, uh, with all the intelligence chiefs talking about uh, the Russians, uh, you know, cyber attacks against the U.S., the CIA, the FBI, NSA, everyone is basically on the same sheet of music on this. So I want to just briefly read you something that George Tenet, who was CIA director <coughs> during the events that are described here, uh, wrote in his in his memoir. He, he discusses these, these issues of the, you know, the, the rivalry, anger. The CIA has its own version of, of of this. But he says, while our cultures and missions may have been different, there was no difference in the heartfelt way CIA officers and FBI special agents tried to protect the country. Is that 
at the end of the day, is that is that accurate in, in your judgment? Actually, I support him 100% with that specific statement. However, if you look at the uh, CIA IG report, Inspector General report on 9-11, they hold Mr. Tennant and a uh, few other people in the agency accountable for what happened on 9-11. So it wasn't the CIA officers in the field who were putting their life on the line with the FBI agents that they are working with in Yemen or in Albania or in you know Afghanistan or in Pakistan. We were working together. We were in the same vehicles. We were you know depriving the same sources. We were doing the same operations. Uh, it wasn't that. It was more a systematic problem at the top. And I think the CIA IG. I don't want to say what the FBI IG is saying about that because you're going to say, well, you're an FBI agent. You're taking the FBI side. I'm talking about the CIA Inspector General report in the declassified summary of their investigation. Uh, they found out, number one, that information were not shared with the FBI in a timely manner. And number two, um, the DCI, who is, I think, at the time was uh, Mr. Tennant, and few on, a few senior members uh, were to be held accountable for the tragic events that took place on 9-11. So, um I want to turn to, to Jeff Daniels. Uh, Jeff, uh, as you've just seen, plays the person who is, in a sense, the dark uh, hero of this, of this story, uh, the extraordinary uh, uh, FBI special agent in, in New York who was uh, driven by this, but uh, you know, a swashbuckling. I don't need, need to tell the audience. You just watched uh, Jeff play the play the role. I read. swashed a buckle or two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to read you something that appeared in the Washington Post's review of Larry's book back in 2006 about the character that you're playing. Our reviewer said, by all accounts, O'Neill was a larger-than-life figure, a Damon Runyon-esque person who J. Edgar Hoover reportedly complained dressed more like a mobster than a G-man. So my question is, how did you get your mind around playing somebody who was looked like a mobster but was an FBI man uh, and had this extraordinary, somewhat out of control personal life? Well, that was the, uh, the reason to take it. Um, well, I read the first episode. That's all I, I, I read that and committed uh, because I'd never played it before. I'd never, I didn't have a clue as to how to do that. You know, uh, the, I'd never played a character like that, and that's the, I love the challenge of it. Immediately started talking to his partners, talked to Ali, um, talked to a bunch of his guys quite a bit, Mark Rossini, guys like that, who just went into the, here's, what, here's where John was great, here was where he was weak, here's where he was a complete asshole, and here's where he is a hero. I mean, you got the full spectrum from those guys, and Larry's book, and the scripts, and you're going, okay, I think, I can do this, and you jumped off the. I jumped off the cliff, and then you get, you know, Peter, Tahar, Ren. You get you get actors who bring it, and now you're you can pretend you're in that room with them. You really felt as real as we could possibly make it, uh, because of all the research and then all the the help you have from the other actors. So, it 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 worked. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but it worked. Do you uh, think, Jeff, that it would have taken an SOB like John O'Neill to have stopped uh, bin Laden? I mean, as we know, O'Neill was in the end forced out of the Bureau. But did it, did it take someone like that to, to try to make this work? 
He certainly tried, and he went there, and he turned over tables and screamed and yelled because at the end of the day, he knew he was right, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and that, was, that meant if I have to be that, and probably not a political bone in his body no. down here in Washington, and he's slamming into the CIA and ripping on Richard Clark, whose patience with him was almost fatherly, and yeah, you, you uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I could ask you what, uh, what John O'Neill would think to see the FBI being pounded uh, in uh -huh. public today, but I'm, we're going to... What would he say? You <laughs> <laughs> couldn't print it. I don't know. You're John O'Neill. Go ahead. Uh. <laughs> so let me turn to the, to the fictional uh, Ali Soufan, uh, who was uh, Tahar Rahim who's in our, in, our, in our mezzanine tier here. Um, and, uh, so you have the opportunity to play uh, this man. And I want to ask you to, to explain uh, how you got to understand him. And in your presentation, as I said to you, what makes him tick? You know, with a watch or something that makes it tick. What, what makes this man tick, uh, as you as an actor tried to understand him? <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, no, first I, I picked this part when we talked. I mean, there's a, <laughs> a funny story about it. it when, when I got the, the two first episodes, I read them, and I, and I, was, uh, I didn't know if I wanted to do it because I, I always take time. So I talked with, uh, with uh, Dan and, and, uh, and Alex on, on Skype, and uh, at some point I said, I didn't know really, so I said, uh, I'm going to call Ali. And Ali's my agent, right? It's not the, the real one. Not and they said, okay, we can, we can set a Skype call. <laughs> and I was like, but I got his number. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want to do? <laughs> and they said, we can do it with, the real, with Ali Sufan. I said, okay, it was all right. And then we talked, and he started to tell me about his life and uh, w what's going to happen after these two episodes. I mean, the real story. And uh, over the course of that disc conversation, uh, I started to understand what they were talking and what they were saying. And uh, I wanted to do it. So uh, when I went in, in New York to prepare, I met Ali. And I have to say that he really welcomed me as a brother. So we started to talk about everything, what, about his life, about his, uh, in a, with its limit, <laughs> and about his private life. Because when you work as an FBI agent, you have to compose private and, and professional life. And I wanted to know more about his values and everything. Because for me, it was more important to portray his soul than, uh, than his, uh, the way he talks or he walks or, you know. It's a, it's a wonderful performance. As you'll see in later episodes, Ali is always leaving his girlfriend in the lurch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh... She's my wife now. <laughs> Did I destroy the season? Oh, sorry. You know what happened? You know, team must really love you. Um, uh, so um, next to Tahar is, is uh, Peter Sarsgaard, who plays uh, a character that you've just seen uh, named Martin Schmidt. Bears uh, more than a fleeting resemblance to another uh, real-life person whose initials are the same, but we won't, we won't go into that. Um, I want you to, to t tell us about uh, Schmidt. Um, in this argument uh, between the CIA and, and the FBI, uh, Schmidt would argue that 
the FBI doesn't understand what this is. The, the FBI is treating this as a law enforcement issue, and this is this is war. To just get, voice some of what that character uh, thinks and how, how you got your mind around it. It's lonely to be the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and I and I and I say that like. I really do believe that that's what it, that's the experience that I'm having in a lot of it, is that, first of all, if I share with the FBI everything I know, I mean, these people are gonna go out and arrest sources, you know, is the idea, or they're going to mess up the investigation. But it's also the sense of being someone who really is very, very, very intelligent and has acolytes, you know, there are people around me reinforcing that all the time. They happen to be all women. Has his own, you know, separate place, uh, Alex Station. So he's got his own little universe. And, you know, it's like um, tunnel vision. And a tunnel vision that has a certainty to it. And so when anyone comes into that world, they're stepping into my universe and they know nothing about it from my from my um, mind so partly because you won't let them know anything about it yeah but it's almost like the sense that they can't possibly understand it even. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I felt that and and sometimes it even feels like a burden you know it's like I think a lot of us in some small way do this where we are the heroes of our own lives. And the story that you tell about your life from birth to this moment is a hero's journey. And maybe not all of us have that, but this guy really has that in spades. And the world is against him, and he's on a mission that no one else can understand. And um, I think that my, my heart is in some ways in the right place. Um, I, I want some of the things, same things that he wants. Um, but to me, he's really inept and he's going to completely F this thing up if I, if I share anything. And um, I don't know, it, it, was, it was great fun to play, I have to say. Um, because there's, you know, I felt like I empowered myself playing it. I was, there, I had no superior. You know, in some, some scenes, they would hand out these like little badges that you had to wear when you went into, you know, the Oval Office or whatever, and I'd be like, I don't need this thing. <laughs> you know, like, don't put any stuff on me. Or, you know, I could wear whatever I wanted to wear. I didn't have to dress up for any scene. Um, that's him calling now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, you know, the characters that this is based off of have been much maligned. It's, you know, and I've been given this task before as an actor to play someone who, on the surface of things, is, you know, not a very nice fellow. But we're all born, we all die. And your job as an actor is to figure out why they're there at that moment and what they want. And I do believe that what he wanted was to be of use to his country. Um, and, and I don't think he thought even that we should be in any of this. 
You know, I think deep down he, he was an isolationist, like someone else who supposedly is an isolationist who's running this country. Um, but like that idea of like, well, we, we could just leave Saudi Arabia. We could just leave Egypt. We could just leave Israel all alone, come back here, mind our own business, and it would all be fine. It's, it's one of the fascinating dynamics of this story is that the two people who see this coming, see the looming tower ahead, uh, in Larry's phrase, Larry and I were talking about this er earlier, uh, really are your two characters, the Martin uh, Schmidt character and the, and the John O'Neill character. They each see the danger. They do very different things about it, but it's, 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 it's fascinating. So one of your acolytes, um, as you said, one of the people <laughs> who is supporting you uh, is uh, uh, played by Ren Schmidt. Uh, her, she plays a CIA officer named uh, Diane Marsh. And I, I'm fascinated to know uh, how you read into this role. Claire Danes, in another unnamed, I don't know what that series is called, um, <laughs> has taught us that, that women are, are significant players in the, in the modern CIA. Uh, but but I'm, I'm curious about how you got into that, what you learned about uh, the way that women operate in, 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 the, in the agency in, this, in, that, in its very particular culture uh, and how you brought that into the character. Well, for me, the, the first place I always start is the script um, because that feels like that's my roadmap. Um, so before I kind of go searching for ideas, um, I really want to kind of investigate and dive into what the character is doing and how they're behaving and how they're reacting to certain circumstances when they choose to speak, not speak. Um, the fact that she has this almost um, worshipful way of interacting with her boss uh, because she sees his fearlessness, his clarity, um, his brilliance, uh, and his fascinated by that, um, but also feels very much in sync with that. So for me, that's always the starting point. Um, and then after that, it just felt like a headlong deep dive into research in such a way that I felt like I wouldn't feel like a fraud playing a CIA officer, which, I mean, I have to say, I think we all feel a fair amount of responsibility um, in telling the story and the gravity of the story. So for me, that was kind of paramount initially, was how do I learn enough to speak these words so that I can feel like I can imbue them with the weight that they are due. So that was really the beginning for me, but I, I don't have like a set idea of what a CIA officer should be because I also feel like they're people doing a job, um, and I haven't seen Homeland. Um, so I don't really have Claire Danes in my mind. I haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, so for me, it was very fresh. Uh, and it was about w what makes a person in this particular environment who's female succeed um, and very much have a presence. Like, what is that? Um, so for me, those were all of the starting points. And at that point, I think you just jump off the cliff and you hope for magic on the day when you're in a room with other actors and that you can be open to what's happening. So it wasn't about an idea. Say just a word about, about your research. You said uh, you, research, you went to, did a deep dive and you researched. How, how did you do that? Did you hang out 
uh, across the river at a certain... Uh, uh, I got some binoculars. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, I, so Larry's book was the starting point for me. Um, and then I read Steve Call's book, Ghost Wars, which I felt like helped me really kind of understand what kind of led to where Afghanistan was as a country in the 90s and what US policy was towards Afghanistan at that time, what it was like to be in the CIA fighting the Soviet Union you know, during the Cold War, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then I spoke with a CIA officer who was, she was an operational officer. So for me, I really wanted to understand also what was the culture, you know, how, how do the two departments, or not departments, I don't feel like in some ways I still don't understand the terminology, how does the intelligence side, as far as an analyst goes, interact with the operational side? Um, so it all kind of started there, and then it was like, okay, throw that all away, now that you feel like you have like some kind of understanding, and just go back to the script and, and really like let go with this guy. So I want to turn uh, finally to the, to the two producers uh, of this series who, with Hulu, uh, made it happen. Uh, Alex uh, Gibney and, and Dan uh, Futterman. And I, I want to um, ask each of you to just uh, share w with us um, what you take away from, from this story that you've been uh, living with. I mean, Larry said in introducing uh, tonight's uh, performance that uh, he thought this was the right time because 9-11 is receding. It's possible now for us to talk about it. It was too painful a while ago. But also there are a lot of people who don't really, you know, who are so young they don't remember it. So uh, Alex and, and then Dan, t tell us uh, what you take away from the project, uh, what, what you think the lessons are. Uh, Alex? Sure. Well, I mean, I, uh, you know, one of the things that so intrigued me about this, and, and, and I'd, I'd worked with Larry together on a, on, on, on a, on a film about his one-man play, My Trip to Al-Qaeda, which was all about the writing of, of The Looming Tower, and what attracted me about that, but then particularly for this, was the idea of this story as an origin story. I mean, so much of our uh, lives now are defined by the... Um, the mess that has become the Middle East and so much that we started um, or, or that we were victims of and then reacted to. But, but if you look at the origin story, it, it's galvanizing and simplifying in some essential way that allows you to better understand where we're at in the present. That was one thing. I think the other thing too was that framing this story as, um, as a kind of conflict between the FBI and the CIA sheds a lot of light on some of the issues that we're dealing with right now in terms of um, people in the government who should be working together to solve simple problems um, have either political or institutional agendas that are preventing them from doing that. So for both those reasons, it seemed very present and also um, riveting in the sense that as an origin story, y you could understand it better than you could by trying to come at it in the present time. Dan, let me ask, ask you to address the same question. I want to add one more um, uh, point to, the, to, to my set of, of takeaways, and it's really the, the most visceral one, um, which is whether you think at the end of this story 
that the truth is that 9-11 was preventable, that, that it didn't have to happen. It, ha it happened because of mistakes. Oh, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think that, uh, that families of the victims of 9-11 have been asking those kinds of questions for 17 years. And we uh, try to answer some of those questions. And when there are, they're not answerable, we try to ask those questions again uh, loudly and clearly. Um, for me, the, that was not a primary interest in, uh, in writing this. Uh, the primary interest was working with Larry and Alex, who I'd been a fan of for a long time, and, and uh, telling these parallel stories of an acolyte and a mentor, um, but also telling Ali's story of a Muslim American hero, an immigrant from Lebanon, teenage immigrant from Lebanon, who would probably have a hard time getting into the country these days, and who is very possibly the most patriotic person I know. He, he uses phrase all the time, my country this, my country that. I don't know anybody who does that. He's talking about the United States, not talking about Lebanon. And we tried to add in a story of a, a, a man who's trying to wrest his religion back from people who are, who are trying to hijack it. Um, and we added in, as he is doing that, an increasing devotional aspect, uh, which Tahar has possibly a little bit more than the real Ali Sufan and became an interesting thread to explore. Um, it's, a, it's a parallel thread that John O'Neill has, um, an increasing interest in Catholicism that he had left behind. Uh, those are the things that interested me, whether um, those are the takeaways that people have, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Those are each of you made uh, powerful points of the resonance of this story uh, 17 years ago or more with what's going on now, the, the centrality of a Muslim American in, in the mm -hmm. investigation, the uh, difficulty then and now of making our government uh, work uh, smoothly. I want to close this by uh, coming back to, to Larry, uh, whose, whose, whose book uh, I think really has been a kind of bench benchmark in the, our debate about 9-11. About and just to ask you whether you think um, we're condemned to be in these cycles of reaction to the terrible violence that's done to us, and then we fight back, and then you know, we watch that in Iraq, we watch that in Afghanistan. Do you think there's a way for the United States to escape that cycle? And just say a little bit about how you think that might happen. Well, I've thought a lot about this. I don't have a, an easy solution because, you know, it's so tragic that we've done such a poor job of learning lessons. And uh, so, you know, one would say, oh, look what happened to us. We'll never do that again, and then we do it again. Uh, and the, the pessimistic side of me says, yeah, we'll, we'll finally stop doing it when we're broke. And, you know, and we're, our status in the world is diminished and we can no longer try to be a force for good in the world because we've been wasting ourselves on, on efforts that are going nowhere. That's one way in which the scenario you're talking about would come about. Another way would be for Americans to decide that, you know, wait a minute, let's stop and reappraise our role in the world, what we are capable of doing, and, and the effect of our presence. A lot of, a lot of times we don't know 
the, the powerful effect that America has in the rest of the world, and we don't understand why we get this incredible blowback. When you're out in the world, you see America on the horizon, but when you're in America, you don't see the world that way. And I think another thing is, you know, we have to have a powerful exchange of cultures. And, you know, having students traveling, all this sort of thing, getting to know the world. It's so shocking to me still how little Americans know about the rest of the world. And the arrogance that we have about thinking that we can fix cultures that we totally don't understand. That's why we get into these fixes that we're in. So educating ourselves about the rest of the world, assuming a more sober stance about uh, what we can do. And then finally, remembering who we are. I mean, I think one of the things about 9-11 is that fear took over our country. And we began to act out of fear. And, and we lashed out. And moreover, we began to create a kind of security state that is very different from the America that we all grew up in. Young people don't know about how America was before 9-11. The ordinary freedoms that we had just to, you know, I remember going in high school, going, taking my girlfriend on a date to the airport because uh, I didn't have any money, but we walked out on the tarmac and we climbed into some airplane that was just flown in from Paris and they served us a snack and then we, we went up in the FAA tower. Hey kids, come on in. You know, that America's dead and terrorism killed it. But if we, if we forget that America, then I think in some vital way that terrorists have won. So I, that's a perfect way to end our, our, our conversation. Um, this uh, uh, is a, a show that will begin, or people can, can now that you've seen, you've, you've had the tease, uh, now you can, you can watch the story unfold. I just want to thank all the people uh, on stage with me uh, for the, uh, being here tonight, the creative work they've done, and uh, thank you very much. And thank you, David. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.